Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bolin Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bolin Branch's sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee, plus 15% off your first order at bolinbranch.com code odyssey. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Knowing how to speak and understand a new language can be an invaluable tool when traveling, meeting new friends, or just even to master a new skill. But it's not always simple when you're bogged down by textbooks and structure classes. That's why so many people trust Rosetta Stone. Rosetta Stone is the most trusted language learning program available on desktop or as an app. It truly immerses you in the language you want to learn, like Spanish, French, Italian, Chinese, and more. You won't just be studying English translations. The Rosetta Stone intuitive process helps you pick up a language naturally, first with words, then phrases, then sentences. Don't put off learning that language. There's no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. Visit rosettastone.com rs10. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com rs10 today. Hello, kids. This is Risk, the show where people tell true stories they never thought they'd dare to share. I'm Kevin Allison, and every Thursday, we release these special episodes where we look back at Risk content from our earlier years. Now, for a long time now, the first two years worth of Risk episodes, the ones from October of 2009 through October of 2011, have been behind a paywall. But that's been a little confusing for a lot of Risk fans who are always telling us they didn't even know those first two years worth of episodes existed. So we thought it would be fun if every other Thursday now, we re-ran an entire episode from the very earliest days. Now, as we review these throwbacks, remember many of these recordings were made over a decade ago. I just ask that you keep that historical context in mind. Today in 2020, there's a vastly different consciousness. Risk has always asked our storytellers to err on the side of not being too cautious, to speak in as unfiltered a way as possible. That said, we also want our storytellers to be compassionate in their storytelling. But even in stories where you hear an overall compassionate context to the sharing, you might still notice some moments that strike you as cringeworthy today. A lot of these storytellers, and myself as the host of some of the oldest episodes, would probably have handled those moments differently today. As always, the title of the series, Risk, is itself a trigger warning. This week, the 10th ever risk episode to appear in the world it is from february 9th of 2010 and it's called good grief how can i tell you the things i've done i never thought i would tell anyone i took a risk and now it's done i gotta tell you I gotta tell someone Consider yourself told Folks, this is Risk The show where people tell true stories They never thought they'd dare to share 
We had a little ragtime up front from Andrew Burns and J. Walter Hawks, and we're getting it right down in the soul this very second from the City Champs. I'm Kevin Allison, and today on Risk, we'll be hearing stories of failure and growing pains. Those times we just hit the ground and had to peel ourselves up off it. Hey, if you're in New York on February 11th, 2010, come see the Risk Live show at 92Y Tribeca on Hudson Street. Michael Showalter will perform, and there's actually two other members of the state on today's episode. Our first is the funniest lady I know, Carrie Kenny Silver. You've seen her hilarious portrayal of Deputy Trudy Weigel on Reno 911. We call Carrie's story, I Me Mime. So when I was in college, I was an acting major at New York University and, you know, had that typical sort of actor thing of I'll only do theater, I'll never leave New York, and I'm much too good for television. You know, of course, not knowing that there was no money in theater and lots of money in selling products on television. I got a call from my girlfriend who worked at a commercial agency and she said, I got an audition for you for a commercial. And I said, you know what, I'll do it. For you, I'll do it. You know, all high and mighty, like I'm really doing her such a favor, coming in auditioning for her thing. And it was for a telephone company. They were going to do a new phone plan, this great phone plan that you could buy. I had never auditioned for a commercial before, and I didn't realize the commercials, when they're given to you on paper, have a title. The title of the actual spot was called Mime. So... I get excited because I got a B in mime at school, you know, pretty impressive. So I thought, oh, well, I've got this. I mean, no problem. I went into the room and the casting director said, okay, what we need you to do is we need you to listen to the voiceover that we're going to be reading and react to it. So I'm thinking, listen, react, but with mime, obviously. I mean, it says mime on the page. So she says, okay, action. Now, with all the gusto, a theater student at New York University at age 19, I let loose every rope-pulling, fake ladder-climbing, caught-in-a-box, bird-catching, hearing sounds, pulling ropes, moonwalking. I was basically doing everything except wearing a unitard and a little white flower on my lapel. I mean, I was on the floor, I was climbing the walls, I was using the space, as we used to say in acting class. I was, uh, I was sore the next day. I used my instrument to, to its fullest degree. By the end of this incredible mime piece that I had done, I was out of breath. It was so dramatic, and what I thought was just, I'm going to look up, and these people are going to be blown away. So I look up, out of breath, to the blankest stares you have ever seen in your life. And one person, I think, with just complete horror on his face. And I think, well, maybe I just shock them with my incredible mime talents. And I said, thank you. And they said, you can go now. And and I left. I later found out by watching the spot on TV, what they meant for me to do was to just sit very still and 
silently sort of nod my head in reaction to what the voiceover was saying. Like, you can get this plan for just $9.99 a month. And then the actor on TV was just sort of like, hmm, nodding with interest. Not caught in a box, not pulling any ropes, not climbing any ladders. My girlfriend who worked at the agency later told me that that tape of my audition went around that agency for the next five years just for people to laugh at because it was it was so incredibly embarrassing and ridiculous. So some of my finer work, the experience definitely brought me down to earth and now I would give anything to do a tampon commercial. But I wouldn't mime it because I think that would be inappropriate. Dan Rosen, channeling Animal Collective. This next story comes to us from a very sharp young stand-up on the scene. You may have seen him on the Colbert Report, and you can find him anytime at LukeCunningham.com. This one's called Little Big Man. I grew up... Uh, I'm, I'm huge. I'm a gigantic dude. Let's get that out of the way to begin with. I'm a giant, giant man. I'm six foot six, which is very large. Uh, so, the thing is, like, when I was a kid, I was always tall, but I was also, like, I was a giant fat kid. Like, big, big fat kid. And I used to wear red all the time, and everybody in my neighborhood called me Red Delicious. Which was weird, because I never would have eaten an apple, you know? Like, why would anyone eat an apple after God invented Skittles? It doesn't make any sense that you would go anywhere near that. But the thing that happens is, like, I always knew, like, my dad was six foot five, and my mom was six feet tall, so I always knew I was going to grow at some point. I was one of five boys. My parents are Irish Catholic. They had an irresponsible number of children. You know the stereotype. So I always knew, like, I was going to get really tall, and then it just happened over the course of one summer. Like, I suddenly went from, like, five foot ten to six foot four in, in a summer, which is, like, I used to lay in my bed and cry because my knees would hurt. <laughs> like, growing pains are, at, are real, and they're physical, and they hurt. Like, it would, my, and my, you know, my brothers would be like, stop crying, you giant pussy. Like, <laughs> but it happened. And then the other thing that happened, like, I played basketball my entire life. Like, I always played growing up. My dad had been our coach all the time. And I played, and then all of a sudden, you're six foot four, and now, like, I went from a guy who would be, like, last picked to a guy who could fucking ball. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> like, I could dunk a basketball, which in, my, like, my neighborhood was nothing but, like, working class Irish Catholics and Italians. Like, all of a sudden, a giant white kid who could dunk a basketball. Like, people would come out to watch this. <laughs> like, have you seen the giant white kid with the white trash skater haircut dunk a basketball? <laughs> it's amazing. And, like, I... Whatever, it's not that big of a deal. <laughs> and... <laughs> It was way into it, and I don't know if you guys had it, I'm 30 years old. Around like 1993 to 1998, there was this really sweet window where the white trash haircut of shaved underneath and then parted in the middle was a big, big deal. And I had that. I don't mean to brag. So, 
And it was the summer of 1995. Like, I'd already had a summer being tall. I played on a basketball team, and we were playing in this summer league. And I was convinced at this point that, like, it was just a matter of time before, you know, like, Coach Krzyzewski from Duke or Dean Smith from North Carolina, like, heard the legend of the giant Irish Catholic white kid. Who, and I had like I had my interviews all prepped out for SI. I'd be like, yeah, you know, I'm gonna play basketball, but I still listen mostly to Weezer and Smashing Pumpkins. And like, pretty broad like that. I'm the new Bill Walton. I'm the new Bill Walton. If you want to steal that line. And then there was just one game where all those dreams got crushed. Just crushed. Cause like I, the thing that happens is once you dunk a basketball, like you just assume you're gonna do that every play. For the rest, you're like, well, I can do this, so this is how the games will go. Like, we'll score 102 points, just pass it to me, and I'll dunk. And it doesn't happen like that at all. Like, the moment someone gets near me, I can't do it. But uh, it's like a mundane superpower. Like, anyone gets near me, and it's like, hey, you're going to punch me in the balls, and I can't do it. But we played this team uh, in a summer league game from Philadelphia, and they were from, like, this kind of, like, ritzy suburban town. And I was like, all right, whatever. And they were supposed to have this one guy who was supposed to be amazing. Uh, and he was like this tall black guy. And I was like, whatever. And my coach was like, well, Cunningham, you're gonna D up that guy. I want you to be in his jersey the entire game. I was like, fuck yeah, that's what I'm doing. I'm living in that guy's jersey. Cause he was like either like rumors about how good this guy was. And like, you have to D him up all game. I was like, all right, 94 feet, let's do it. And so the game starts and I didn't talk shit previously to anybody. Just as like I was the I was the fourth of five boys, so it was like generally I was the beating pole. Like there was no reason I was really out of practice to talk shit to anybody. You know, be like your deodorant isn't that effective. I have no idea why I would have done it at all. But as soon as the ball went up to this guy, like I was in this guy's ear the entire time, just jawing about nothing. And like this guy was preternaturally talented, just like way better than anybody else in the court. And we could do anything he wanted at any given time. Like, and I figured this out within the first few minutes when he was just like, he was shooting from like half court, like, uh, and just <laughs> drilling it. And it got to be halftime. And I was like, guys on my team were like, you can't fucking do anything about against this guy. We've come to see you dunk. How come you can't handle this? At all, and I was like, well, he's just—I don't know—he's just quicker and better and whatever. And like, but you keep talking shit to him. I was like, yeah. They're like, well, why don't you make fun of his name? And I was like, well, what's his name? And they're like, Kobe. And I was like, oh, <laughs> oh, I'm gonna make fun of his name now. <laughs> and they started feeding me little details about him. So the second half of the game starts, and I start talking shit to Kobe Bryant. <laughs> about how his dad had not been that good in the NBA. <laughs> like, your dad was just a fucking journeyman in the NBA. Whatever, Kobe. I, like, if that guy had known, he'd have been like, um, Ed Cunningham runs an employees-only credit union in suburban Philadelphia. How about you fucking step off for a second? And by the way, Kobe's team won a state championship in 1996. Like, Pennsylvania, that's... That's ridiculous. Like, he went from Lower Marion, Pennsylvania. Like, it was Kobe and then four dudes who looked like Kevin Allison. Won the fucking <laughs> state championship. <laughs> like, one of the kids was goth, you know what I'm saying? Like, the guitarist was playing the four. Like, it just made 
no fucking sense that this team would win a state championship. Like another guy was playing in a puka shell necklace and Tevas. It was just like, what the fuck? Hey, have you heard the new Dave Matthews band album? Whatever. Kobe's just gonna score again. I don't care. My dad makes me play. But not to be, and I just, I like, there's something that happens when you project yourself into doing something that you won't let it go. Like, anybody else like that? Like, you just won't give something up. And for whatever, I just would not give up. Like, he was clearly more talented than me. But I was convinced that I just, like, I just hadn't been working hard enough for the first half. So the second half started, and I'm jawing at him, whatever. And he gets an outlet pass. Like, where they just whip it down the court. And he is maybe, like, a stride and a half in from the foul line to the side. And I had not hustled back down court, so I was there. And there's this thing you do on basketball where you just kind of grab somebody and prevent them from getting an easy layup. And so I went over to do that, to just like, oh, I'm just gonna grab you so you can't get an easy layup. And instead, I just swiped and slapped his shin as a pair of black knees went sailing by my eyes. This was followed by a kaboom as he dunked on the rim and then swung around on the rim, pointing at me, yelling, I own you, motherfucker, I own you. And when he came down off the rim, this is only gonna work for like three people who might know, he looked me in the eye and he was like, fuck you, Ronnie Cycli. <laughs> See, that guy knows who Ronnie Cycli is. He was a shitty early 90s lottery pick. <laughs> Good on Kobe to notice that reference. But <laughs> like to get Kobe back, I looked him dead in the eyes and I told him my SAT scores, which <laughs> were excellent. <laughs> and I thought that was a rebuttal. <laughs> and then uh, he responded by looking at me for a second being like, whatever, and then reminding me he was gonna be a millionaire in less than a year. He's like, I'm gonna get drafted, motherfucker. And then, he doesn't talk that hood. He's like, I'm gonna get drafted, motherfucker. And then, that's like getting shit talked by David Allen Greer. I'm gonna get drafted, motherfucker. And then he cursed at me in what I guess was Italian. I have no idea. It was some foreign language. And like, I mean, my brothers were there and like, wouldn't give me a ride home afterwards. <laughs> And they're like, yes, how did you not, you're terrible. Like, Mom and Dad thought you were going to be really good at this. And it was this weird moment where I realized, like, I'm not that good at basketball. <laughs> what am I going to do with these goody limbs now? <laughs> like, it's not like you can suddenly be like, well, this is a totally inadequate height for anything else. <laughs> I'll give some of this back. Um, but I think everything works out for me eventually, and I win because I've never been accused of rape. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> In Colorado. Thanks so much. I'm Luke Cunningham. This is Risk. I'm Kevin Allison. Now, here's my own little tale of failure from the Risk Live show in New York. We call it A Little Help from My Friends. Um, I'm going to do the first few lines for you of this character monologue that I did in 1996 at Luna Lounge, which was just right around the corner on Ludlow Street back then. And I remember that Jeff Ross was hosting. And I told him, 
what, why don't, don't tell them that it's me. Tell them it's a mystery guest. Uh, I wanted it to be a surprise. So he did, and I got up on stage, and I took the mic and I said this. Hi there. Well, I guess you're all wondering just exactly who I am. And I can appreciate that. And that's why I feel compelled to admit that I am Charles Manson. Joke! <laughs> Joke! <laughs> Jocular content, folks! Jocular content! I'm not Charles Manson! Hey, gang! That was just joshing around the mulberry bush, if you get my 10-4 good buddy. So that's how the monologue begins, okay? Then I start laughing and wondering how the audience could possibly have gotten this idea that I might be uh, Charles Manson. And then I get really angry that they've been so gullible. And I'm like, of course I'm Charles Manson. And finally, I get to this line where I just look at the audience and I say, Think about it, jackass. And I get to that line, and suddenly I cannot remember a single thing that is supposed to follow that line. I have just made it through the first paragraph of a nine-paragraph monologue, and I, I, I can't even remember what the fuck you know happens. Not, not just what the next line is. I don't remember like where I am. All right, I was 26 then, and the state was going through the breakup, and uh, so it was a very, very, very strange time for me because, you know, we had been together for like eight or nine years, and I had, had, had really believed during those, you know, most of those eight or nine years that we were going to be together forever. <laughs> Because, you know, I mean, if you look at divorce rates, like, you know, 50% of people are not good at sticking together with two, you know? Uh, but the thing is, there's safety in numbers. You know, you, you, you feel a lot more secure when you're on a team and you've got your teammates to collaborate with and to pick you up when you fall, all that sort of thing. So here I am trying to start a solo career and just not knowing how to fend for myself or what I really wanted to be doing. And I started to go into meltdown. Uh, I came down with stage fright. And what a lot of people don't know about stage fright is it's, it's actually like full on real stage fright. It's like a clinical condition. It's like a, a disorder or whatever. Um, and I was I was deep in it, and I just knew, I didn't really know that much about it being a condition. I knew that uh, in the old days of the theater, they called it losing your nerve. And it could be the sort of thing that would kill a career. So it was the sort of thing that you didn't even admit to anyone in the business. So those nights at Luna Lounge and then at the Stella show a little bit later over at Fez, Everyone was there. Uh, you know, Colbert, Galifianakis, Janine, the UCB guys. It was just an awesome time. Uh, and 
I would hang out with these people on these nights I was performing and trying to act, you know, cool. Yeah, I'm going places. But inside, I felt like I had just, you know, like 45 minutes earlier, taken like 10 hits of acid, <laughs> laced with PCP. Uh, I was just terrified these nights. So, I couldn't stand the thought that the audience might, you know, see some of this vulnerability in me. Uh, that I was, you know, had some unsurety about myself. Um, that I wasn't like the Mozart of comedy or something. And what I was failing to see was that all the other comedians around me were like getting all sorts of mileage about letting the audience see all the imperfection. But I couldn't see that. I couldn't see that because I was convinced that I had found a solution to my stage fright problem. Uh, and that was obsessive memorization. Now when I would write a monologue back then, I would spend six or seven days listening to it on my Sony Walkman with Megabase. <laughs> memorizing everything down to the us and the thes. And I would walk from the Lower East Side up to Harlem and back again, listening to the same nine fucking paragraphs over and over and over again. And it didn't make sense because there's only so memorized that a thing can be. You know, there's a point at which it doesn't, you know, there's, it's diminishing returns. And also, there's a fine line between, for any performer, for how much you should memorize, how much you should improvise, and the only way to find that fine line is just to be churning shit out every night, not spending about two weeks or so laboring over just one bit. So, there I was at Luna Lounge with my Manson monologue and people were climbing up the walls in the back because it was so crowded uh, and it was a total fire trap because everyone up front was there were no chairs they were sitting Indian style so I'm doing my you know I guess you're wondering who I am I'm Charles Manson no I'm not Charles Manson you know blah, blah, blah. Uh, and I get to the line Think about it, jackass. And blank. Memorization, like, was no match for the stage fright. So there's this awful silence, and I'm just kind of staring out at the crowd, and they're staring back at me, and they're confused. <laughs> and it was like sound that drained out of the room, you know, like suddenly I was underwater or something these lights in my face, you know, like a deer about to go through the windshield. And I was just grasping, like, okay, well, what, what, what do I do? What do I do? So I thought, go back to the beginning and just start over, because if you get the words going again, it'll all click in. So, there I was, all of a sudden saying, hi there. <laughs> well, I guess you're all wondering. Who I am. So now my already very confusing monologue was becoming like, you know, waiting for Godot or something, like completely incomprehensible. Um, and uh, I go into the, no, I'm Charles Manson, I'm not Charles Manson, blah, 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 blah. And I get right back to think about it, jackass, and I'm blank again. 
It was like I had run, run, run to the very same edge of the very same cliff. So I really didn't know what to do at this point. I'm staring at the audience again. Everyone's still confused. And what I did next was kind of like throwing salt in my own wounds. I looked over at Jeff Ross, who was sitting on the stage, because the place was so packed, the host couldn't get off the stage. And I looked over at him and I said, I can't do this. And I started to leave. Now, here's the problem. Uh, there were no aisles. Uh, the only way to exit this room was to start climbing over people to get to the door, all right? So, you know, uh, uh, hold on a second, where am I here? <laughs> uh, okay, but because it was the new alt-comedy scene, right? What people expected was the unexpected, right? Everyone was trying to be like Andy Kaufman in some way or another. So somehow in the collective brain of the audience, people got this idea that, hey, this character Kevin's doing is so fucked up, he doesn't know whether he's Charles Manson or not. Maybe he's also the kind of guy who gets sudden desperate needs to flee comedy shows. And so they started yelling, no, you can do it. And they're going, do it, do it, do it. And meanwhile, I am just like, no, no. No, I, I'm like, tears are starting to form in my eyes and my, my throat is swelling up. And finally, someone grabs my foot and I go down into the bodies, right? And the next thing I know, I had never done this before, I am body surfing. I'm up in the air, everyone's got their arms up, the place is going fucking nuts. And I'm being spun around. I feel like I've suddenly ended up in like an Italian horror movie, you know? Like the guy who gets shat into the bowels of hell. Well, what they did was, they kept pushing and pushing, and they managed to get me back up to the stage, and they kind of belched me back up on stage. Well, it was the strangest thing, because once I was there, I was like, I don't have much of a choice about this. And sure enough, I remembered the monologue, and I launched into it. And I remembered the whole thing, and I went full out Manson on these people. I was threatening to slaughter everyone in the room and paint the walls with their blood, and they loved it. Well, afterwards, I run into this agent, and he's telling me how much he loved it, and I said, wait a minute, you don't understand. I was really trying to leave. I meant it when I said, I can't do this. And he said, really? Wow. And he said something very interesting. He said, well, now you have seen the worst fears that all actors have realized, but it didn't turn out so bad for you in the end. And I was like, uh-huh. And inside I'm thinking, not really, you asshole, because that was the worst fucking experience I've ever had in my life. But 
about seven months ago, I finally, you know, uh, threw in the towel on writing character monologues and started writing these things, these personal stories. And it wasn't until then that I finally started to realize like what the true value of that whole Luna Lounge experience was. And it is that when you're telling true stories, you really don't need to memorize things down to the us and thus because you're speaking as yourself. And when you start relaxing to that extent on stage, you can't help notice that when you do fuck up, you do have a team behind you. You do have collaborators. Uh, they're all over the room. And I think that if you find yourself in, in that situation, you might find that they think you can do it. Thank you. My baby, she's a risk taker, undercover deal maker, salt and pepper shaker, make a good man fall. Stays out all night, tell me that it's alright. Big hips, loose lips, and that ain't all. Shit, my big risk mama. Big risk mama. Do what she wanna. Oh, big risk mama, come take a chance on me. She a big risk mama. Big risk mama. I know I shouldn't, but I wanna. Oh, big risk mama, come take a chance on me. Those guys are the greatest. Look them up at RooseveltDimeMusic.com. Now, Margot Lightman is a hero of the storytelling scene in New York and a great friend of ours. She has a fantastic show called Stripped Stories at the UCB Theater, where all the tales concern sex. But the story she's about to tell concerns romance. We call it The French Deflection. So when I was 18 years old, I fell madly in love with this guy who was just a complete walking stereotype. He was French, he was a painter, and his name was Pierre. He was a few years older than me, and I just was in love with Pierre. It was a terrible relationship, but it was filled with amazing, amazing moments, like the time where I was crying in the rain because there had been a death in the family, and he grabbed me and kissed me under this blue campus safety light, and I just thought, oh, I never want this moment to end. But there were also other kinds of moments, like when we were lying in bed one night, and he rolled over and said, good night, Diane, and I said, uh, what did you just say? And he flat out repeated it and said, oh, I said goodnight, Diane. Like, he didn't even pretend not to have said goodnight, Diane, to me. And I just went on with the relationship. I was in complete denial that it was a mess, and I just kept going with it because I was 18, and I was impressionable, and I was in love. I was a freshman in a theater department at the time, and everyone in this theater department looked up to this senior girl named Beth who I was constantly being mistaken for because she was tall with long blonde hair as well. And she was the lead in all the musicals and all the guys liked her and all the girls wanted to be her. And I actually did get to be Beth because my school had this uh, tradition where you could get assigned a theater major that was a senior in your freshman year and then you would dig up dirt on them all year and then at the end of the year you would put on a kind of a this is your life show for all the seniors and everyone was assigned a different senior and I was of course assigned Beth. So the year goes on, I'm dating Pierre, everything's a mess, and I don't know why I waited to sleep with Pierre, but I did because I thought it was really romantic to wait to sleep with a French painter. So we finally have sex the night before the big senior play, when Dove's Cry was playing on repeat in the background on this twin bed with the extra long sheets, and I remember it very vividly. 
And then the next day, I do the show, and afterwards there was a big formal dance, and I don't know if anybody ever has been at a dance where there are those obnoxious theater and dance majors that are doing kind of a choreographed routine in the middle of the floor. I'm sorry, but that was me, and that's what I was doing at the dance, and Pierre was not much of a dancer, and I couldn't find him. And finally someone tapped me and said, oh, Pierre was looking for you a while ago. So I stopped my dancing, and I went to go find him. And I did. I found him in the corner of the party making out with Beth. In the movie version of it, I would run out with my ball gown and he would follow me with like an artist's palette and it would be very dramatic, but that's not what happened. Instead, I walked up to him and I just, not gently at all, I just poked him in the arm like four times, which no one wants to be poked while they're like passionately kissing someone. And then he turned around and go, what are you doing? And they just froze, both of them. And then I ran out in my ball gown and he followed me and... And he, he goes, I'm sorry. And I said, what are you doing? And I was so angry, but somehow I had the sense to say, I don't want to say anything I'll regret right now because I'm so mad. And he goes, I'll call you tomorrow and we'll talk. And then I left, like I left him to probably have sex with Beth. I left. And the next day, he never called. And I waited and I waited and he never called. And finally I called him and he didn't answer the phone. And I went to his dorm room and he wasn't there. And I went to the artist's studio to see if I could find him and he wasn't there. And then finally someone in the studio ratted him out and said, I'm sorry, he's gone on a date with Beth. He borrowed my car. And I was completely in tears. And just then he walked in and Pierre was wearing a tie and I, saw him and I ran out into this empty theater, which of course was another great moment and he followed me and I looked at him and I said, don't come any closer because I've never wanted to hit someone as much as I want to hit you right now. And it was just like so like out of a Humphrey Bogart movie. And then, and then he looked at me and I go, why did you do this? And he said, I ran away because I love you. And that is complete bullshit, because when you love something, you don't run from it. You want to be around it. I love chocolate. I want to be around chocolate all the time. I don't run away when I see chocolate. So if anyone says that to you, they're lying. They just don't like you. So I left for home for the summer. I didn't speak to Pierre. I vowed I would never speak to Pierre again. And I went back to school the following fall. But one weekend, I was going away to Boston, and I don't know how it works now, but when I was in college, you would put a poster up that said, going to Boston, need a ride, and then some stranger would call you and say, get in my car, and then you'd drive for six hours with a total stranger, and for as far as I know, no one got raped or murdered by this method. It's crazy. But that's what I did. I hung up the poster, and this guy called me, and he said he had one more spot in his car. So I went to go to meet him for the car that weekend, and he had another guy with him, and they said they were waiting for one more, and then we would leave. And down the hill came Pierre. I remember they played Simon and Garfunkel's greatest hits over and over again. And, and with every Simon and Garfunkel song, our bodies kind of are getting closer with Pierre and I, but we're not speaking. And by the end of the car ride, for Emily, wherever I may find her is playing, and we're kind of like intertwined, but we still haven't spoken. And then we get dropped off at a train station to continue our journey, and the other two guys drove off. So six hours has gone by, and not a word has been spoken. And Pierre and I are just standing there in silence at a train station, and he goes, all right, hit me. And I go, what? And he goes, hit me. I deserve it. That's what you want to do, so just do it. And I said, uh, I'm not going to do that. And he goes, just do it. Hit me. Come on. Hit me. Come on. And all of a sudden, he wasn't this, like, wussy French painter, but was kind of this, like, you know, tan, muscular guy from Jersey screaming at me, like, go on, fucking hit me, hit me, hit me. And I was like, don't make me do this. And he goes, do it, do it. And I punched him in the face. And then suddenly, the train starts coming, and he goes, do you fucking feel better? And I go, yes, I do. 
and the train comes and the horn blows and the light's glaring at me and then he grabs me and then angrily and passionately kisses me. I do believe that anybody else would have done the same thing in that moment because I think that when fists are flying and trains are coming and French painters are planting these angry kisses on impressionable young girls, it's just logic. Everything goes out the window and you just have to give in to the moment. And we got back together in that exact moment. And then he cheated on me with an anorexic freshman a few months later, but it was worth it. Well, I took a risk. I took a big old risk. I took a risk. I took a really risky risk. Oh, yes, I took a risk. I oh, guess I took a big old risk. I took a really risky risk when I kissed another dude on the mouth. Well, we've heard from that gentleman twice in one show. Look him up at thisisdanrosen.com. One more for you here. Michael Ian Black has done everything. The State, Stella, has done books, records. His latest project is Michael and Michael Have Issues on Comedy Central, and he's a very dear old friend. This is called The Peach Badge of Courage. I'm not the kind of guy who does something and says... I can't believe we just did that. (laughs) Because my feeling is, if I can't believe I just did it, I probably shouldn't have done it (laughs) in the first place. And so, when I was living in Los Angeles, and this was a brief period in my life, uh, a friend of mine had an idea. And he said, we should go skydiving. And I was with another friend of mine. Their names are Tom and Ben. And Tom said, we should go skydiving. And Ben immediately said, yeah. And I immediately said, yeah. And I didn't mean it. But my thinking was, I had developed a strategy in my life because I was living with my then girlfriend, now wife, Martha. And the strategy was, whenever she said something, that I didn't really agree with, I would just enthusiastically say, yeah. (laughs) Because I knew most of the time, whatever the idea was, wouldn't pan out. (laughs) Like recently, you know, she said, you know, we should spend a year abroad. We should, we should move, you know, we should go to Sweden. Yeah, we should do that, knowing that we're not going to go to Sweden. You know, I mean, we're not even we're not even going to go to IKEA. You know what I mean? So when Tom and Ben said, "Yeah, we should go skydiving," I said, "Yeah." Mostly, I shouldn't even say mostly. Entirely because I didn't want them to think I was a pussy. Because when there's a dynamic where there's three people and two of them aren't pussies, you don't want to be the guy who is a pussy. So I said, yeah. Within an hour, they had found the skydiving school. They had uh, uh, arranged for us to skydive. And there were two ways you could skydive at this school. The first was the way that you're probably familiar with, which is the tandem skydiving, where a guy straps himself to you and does all the work, throws you out of the plane. 
pulls the ripcord, and you have the experience of having, you know, fallen to the earth. The second way is called AFF, which stands for accelerated free fall. And that means that the fir your first time jumping out of a plane, you do it by yourself, fucker. You spend all day in class. At the end of the day, you go up in a plane, you jump out by yourself. You go with two what they call jump masters, which is maybe my favorite word. In English. <laughs> jump master. Who are experienced skydivers, and they're there to protect you in case you do anything stupid. So Tom and Ben say, well, we should do AFF. And I say, yeah. <laughs> So I go home, and I'm explaining to Martha what I'm going to do, and she's not having it, you know, and she's saying, why, why, why? And, you know, when she does that, it's sort of like uh, explaining, I'm in the position of explaining to, like, somebody who suddenly wakes up and doesn't believe in Santa anymore why Santa exists. The logic, when you think about it for even a second, doesn't make any sense, but I'm in the position of having to defend it because she knows... I don't want to go skydiving. She knows me well enough to know this, but I can't explain to her the true reason, which is just that I don't want to be a pussy. So I dig in my heels and I'm saying, no, I want to live life on the edge. I want to experience the adrenaline rush. I'm like, I'm like the world's worst Mountain Dew commercial. So we fight about it. And you know, and at the end of the night, we go to bed, and the only agreement that we come to is that I'm a terrible person <laughs> who will die the following day <laughs> just to spite her. <laughs> the next day, I drive out to the desert where I'm gonna meet them. It's like two hours away. It's, it's in the middle of nowhere. It's called Paris Valley, California. And Paris is the most, you know, romantic thing, the name Paris is the most romantic thing about this place, because it's just scrub, it's nothing. But there's this airstrip there, which is sort of like a mecca for skydivers, and people come from all over the world to skydive at this place, and there's tents scattered all over the place, and there's, you know, sky surfers and things like this. So we get out, and there's like basically a little like air-conditioned trailer where you go for class, and there's a guy there who introduces himself, and I don't know what his name is, but I'll call him, you know, Rick. That seems like what his name should be. The first thing he does is he puts us in this little anteroom in the trailer and he makes us watch a video. And the video explicitly says, you could die doing this. There's a fair to middling chance that you will die doing this activity today. Do you know that? And it repeats it several times. Are you aware that you could die? If you die, it's not our fault. You're the fucker who signed up for this fucking thing, you fucking dick. <laughs> At the end of that, Rick goes, you know, don't worry about that. And then you have to sign forms. We <laughs> have to sign forms that say we could die and probably will die, and it's not their fault. And Rick says, Rick takes us into the little classroom, and it's now apparent why we were able to get uh, space so quickly because there's nobody else there. It's just the three of us and Rick. And in my memory, he's wearing like in like a fighter pilot suit, but that doesn't really make sense because that's not what. Skydivers wear, they don't wear fighter pilots. They wear, you know, parachuting suits. Uh, 
<laughs> you know, a parachuting suit is sort of like, it's sort of to a flight suit, what like Liberace's outfits would be to like a business suit. <laughs> it's a lot more sort of flamboyant and cheerful. <laughs> so we sit in class uh, for eight hours and we go through all this stuff and there's not that much to learn ultimately. <laughs> Because gravity's doing most of the work. <laughs> really what you gotta know when you're skydiving is you do this. At a certain point, you just do this. <laughs> and that should save your life. <laughs> and I'll skip to where we're, where we're going up in the thing. So we go outside, and this is after hours, and where it's hot, it's so hot, and I'm anxious, and Ben and Tom are incredibly confident, and they're being dicks about it. <laughs> Just in their enthusiasm, I'm getting angry at them because they seem to have no worries at all. You know, it's a lot of like grinning and like high fives. And, like, this is going to be awesome. I'm like, yeah, yeah. The plane that we're going to be skydiving in comes towards us, and it is the oldest looking aircraft I have ever seen in my life. It's the scariest vehicle I have ever contemplated getting into. And I hadn't thought when I was thinking that I was going to die that day, that I would die in a plane crash. <laughs> because, you know, that's the sort of furthest thing from my mind. When you're thinking parachuting, you're not necessarily thinking, I'm going to die in a fiery plane wreck. And you probably think to yourself, well, if you're in a plane and you've got a parachute strapped to your back, you should be fine. No, because a parachute needs about a thousand feet to work. And if you skid off the runway and, and tumble into a fiery ball, you probably haven't achieved that altitude. And there's so many people waiting to get into this plane. And the plane is exactly what you think. It's silver and old and there's propellers and it's hollowed out inside. And skydivers are crammed into every fucking nook and cranny in this thing that you could possibly squeeze yourself into. And I'm thinking we're over the weight limit. We're definitely over the weight limit. Because skydivers, they don't, I don't know, they're not fit, you know what I mean? You don't have to be. They're every shape and size. And they're, they're carrying parachutes and these fucking skyboards, and I don't know what those are for. And we're crammed in there, and the plane's taking off, and I'm claustrophobic, and I'm sweating, and I'm starting to feel nauseous, and the thing is going up, and the pilot is counting off every thousand feet. We have to get to a certain altitude, and it's 3,000, 4,000. It's taking forever. And at this point, I'm thinking, I gotta get out of here. <laughs> at this point, my fears of dying parachuting are subsumed by my fears of just claustrophobia and being in this horrible, horrible, horrible aircraft with these grinning fucking idiots. <laughs> so somebody opens the door and people start disappearing out of the airplane one by one. And it's a weird thing when you're in the airplane and you see people jump out. That's an odd experience to have. I mean, you're prepared for it mentally. You know it's going to happen. But the way it works is you sort of get on the lip of the plane and there's a rail above you. And then, you know, you're not so much thrust into space as you just simply disappear into it. So you're looking at somebody and one minute they're there and then they're gone. That's weird. And then Tom was the first of our trio to get up. And he gets up very confidently, goes to the thing. His jump masters are with him. And they go, because you can't hear anything. It's really loud in the plane. And he's gone. And now it's my turn. And 
I know I have a choice at this point. I don't have to jump out of the plane, but I get to the edge and I get into position and the jump master. And they're looking at me. And I'm thinking, you know, I don't know what's gonna happen. I don't know whether I'm gonna go out or I'm gonna stay in. And is the shame of staying in worse than the, than the fear of dying going out too? And Ben is looking at me and his eyes are fucking bugging out of his head. And he's giving me this shit. And I'm staring at him. Three. And I jump. I jump without hesitation. I jump without fear. I jump. And the first thing I notice is I don't know where my body is in the world. I don't know what I'm doing, where I am. I'm not aware of anything other than the sound. Skydiving, when you see it, projected on a screen, which is my only experience with, it seems silent and beautiful, or it's accompanied by a hard-rocking, awesome soundtrack. <laughs> what I was unprepared for was just how loud it is. And it makes sense because you're rushing through air at what they uh, quaintly call terminal velocity. <laughs> and the air is swirling through your ears, and that's why the jump masters are giving you hand signals. And that's what we've spent all day working on, these hand signals. You know, uh, one of them is circle of awareness, is my favorite hand signal. <laughs> which means check your altimeter, which is, or altimeter, I don't remember how it's pronounced, which is just your thing that tells you how high you are, which is an important piece of equipment. Uh, because at a certain point, when it gets to a certain number, you have to pull the ripcord and then, you know, look around you. I, I don't even remember what the fucking circle of awareness was. I just like that there's a circle of awareness. And it's clear I don't remember any of the hand signals at that point because I'm just doing this. You know, they're giving me the hand signals, you know. This, you know, knees closer together, you know, proper skydiving. If I'm just going. And I find out later, this is not one of the hand signals. This doesn't mean anything in skydiving parlance. And so, you know, you can see the jump masters. They're floating right beside me. I'm going down. The altimeter's spinning backwards. And when it starts at 13. We jumped at 13,000 feet. So that gives you almost a minute of free fall. That's a long time to not have your legs on Earth. <laughs> And mostly, I'm not seeing the forest through the trees because I'm just looking at my altimeter. And I'm just watching it spin backwards. Like I'm not, you know, experiencing anything other than... And I can't wait to pull my, my thing. Not because I'm like so anxious to get out of this situation. Like I kind of, you know, I don't think I was, I was sort of numb to it. I was just sort of in this thing where I'm falling to the earth and watching the numbers go, and I'm thinking, and I just wanna, I wanna pull the ripcord, not so much because I wanna get out of it, but because I wanna see if it works. <laughs> you know, it's like when you're having dangerous sex with somebody, you establish a safe word so that if the oxygen is being cut off to your brain, you say the word and they stop, and that's what the parachute is, it's my safe word. So I just wanna know if it works. So I'm waiting for it to go down to four, 4,000, which is where we're finally gonna pull the ripcord. And you know, it's not, it's not the kind of thing where you wanna be late, you know? <laughs> so it's at five and I'm ready, and it's at four, and I fucking pull the thing. 
and there's an awful moment after you pull the pin in a parachute where you don't know if it's going to work or not because the parachute has to unfurl and that takes a couple seconds so you're mm. <laughs> And I thought, I was worried because I, you know, if you ever, when you see parachuting videos, you see when they finally pull the thing, they kind of, the, the, when the parachute activates, they kind of go like this. And I thought, I could get whiplash. You know, I could break my neck. But that's not what happens in actual life. What actually happens is it's a very quick deceleration, but you don't feel like it, like it hurts. And the parachute did unfurl, obviously. <laughs> and I find myself vertical and I'm looking up and the parachute's there and I you know this incredible sense of relief comes over me and elation and the jump masters are kind of tumbling away towards the earth because you know they can they can activate their parachutes lower because they're they're jump masters <laughs> and I'm floating towards the ground and I feel like I've done something here I've survived this I'm a hero Ben and Tom are gonna think I'm awesome I'm not a pussy and just as I'm having those thoughts I throw up all over An explosion of pink and yellow vomit all over my nylon parachute suit. I don't know what I had eaten that day. Apparently it contained equal parts marinara sauce and pineapple. And I'm thinking, all my good deeds have just come undone. Everything that I just accomplished or thought I had accomplished was just washed away in a sea of vomit. And now I have 20 minutes of floating down to the earth to contemplate what I'm going to say, how I'm going to be, how I'm going to explain this to Rick. <laughs> and as I get down to the ground, I decide on a course of action, and I think it's the most honest course of action, which is to wear my puke like a badge of fucking honor. <laughs> there is no other circumstance that I could be more proud of throwing up on myself than having jumped by myself out of an airplane at 13,000 feet. So I get on the ground, and Rick's like, how was it, how was it? And he can smell me, you know, how was it, how long? And I say, and Ben and Tom, or ben, Tom's there, I think Ben is about to land. And I said, I fucking threw up all over myself. <laughs> what do you want me to do with the parachute suit? <laughs> and I'm strutting. 
I'm almost bragging about it. I just threw up on myself. I might have said, dude. <laughs> says, take it off, put it in that pile of there, which I do. Maybe 15 minutes later, we're having a drink. Rick, me, Tom. No mention of the vomit. And Rick is trying to sell us on the rest of the AFF course. And he's like, how many of you guys want to come back and complete the AFF training? And Tom goes, yeah. And Ben goes, yeah. And I go, yeah. Knowing full well we're not coming back. It's a once in a lifetime thing. And it says that on the banner as you pull up. Once in a lifetime experience. Which I realized, thinking about it at that time, could be read one of two ways. I chose to read it in the positive light. But I'm pretty sure, after Rick had left and we were drinking, that I said, unselfconsciously, unironically, and sincerely, I can't believe we just did that. We exchanged high fives all around. And uh, we drove home. Thank you. Tell somebody you know to check out Risk, folks. And don't forget to visit the Support Us page at risk-show.com. Risk is created and hosted by me, Kevin Allison. Our producer is Michelle Walson. Our sound engineer is Nick Montalbano. Our episode editor is Mike Cades. Our story editors are Andy Croner and Jeff Mersel. Our associate producers are Emily Altman, Timothy Meehan, and Madison Perry. And remember what the Abkhazians say about risk. If there is a wedding, grief to the chicken. If there is a funeral, grief to the chicken. Again.